Welcome back to The Dark Side. I'm your host, Brianna. And guess who's joining me again? It's your boy, Dyson. <laughs> okay. Okay. We got Dyson here. Hey. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the second episode of our Forest City series. I want to start the show with a shout out to two of my favorite growing podcasts, Spoils of Horror and Horror House. These guys are seriously the best, and they've been so supportive of Dark Adaptation, and they're all around great dudes, so please give their shows a listen. Horror House is great for a binge of classic true crime and macabre content. Dom is amazing, does good research, has funny little quips. It's great. I love Horror House. Spoils of Horror is amazing. Steven and Leo are fucking hilarious. And the episode I was listening to today called Never Hike in the Snow, Iced for Your Pleasure. Nearly made me pee my pants from laughing. So (laughs) in this episode, they discuss Never Hike in the Snow, a Friday the 13th fan film that I want to see so bad. And they actually, in their like show notes, they included a link to the movie so we have to watch it oh yeah and so one of the hosts steven he tells a story and i was like crying of laughter it's so funny okay so i don't know where they live but um each year if there's a friday the 13th this place hosts a friday the 13th like film festival essentially and so it's like in this campground oh that's great i know it's so cool and uh there's like cook-offs and like all these cool things and so um he was like watching this movie with him and his friends and he realized that he had to pee Mm -hmm. but like the bathrooms were like so far away and they're probably also busy so he's like okay you know what i'm just gonna go in the woods so he like runs out to the woods to take a leak Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this episode he says he's peeing in the woods and he like looks over and there's a fucking Jason cosplayer who is also out there trying to sneak a leak. And he like, he's like, oh my God, nothing scares me. It's so hard to scare me, but that scared the shit out of me. And he, <laughs> but it turned out to be funny because like him and Jason are both out in the middle of the woods with their dick in their hands. Just like, yo, what up, bro? <laughs> We're both off our game right now. Why don't we just do over? I was, I was literally, I was sitting there and, and I had been cleaning and I literally was just stopped and listened and I was, I was crying, laughing. They are so funny. You know what I like about these podcasts too? I was, <sighs> I was so pleasantly surprised because I, I, I didn't know much about podcasting. I, I'm going to use the word community guys, mm-hmm. but like, honestly, like you, you're my boy blue. Yeah. You're my boy. <laughs> But they're honestly, they're they're just like in their podcast. They're really funny. They're so Out, funny. Outside of it, they're really funny. They're really nice. And the other cool thing is like you turn on those podcasts and it's kind of just like having your friends around. Oh my God, that's how I feel. Yeah, it's great. I, I know I was sitting down doing some work and I was just, I just went, you know what? Uh, let's let's uh, dive into this. So mm-hmm. I started listening to it and it made Spoils the work go horror. faster. It made me feel like, you know... Um, it's it, almost like, like you're socializing yeah. during the pandemic where you can't really you socialize. Feel like you have your friends in the room when you're just like stuck doing something alone or like those like mundane tasks that you always have to do. If you throw on a podcast with people and content that you actually love, that you relate to, it is so nice. Yeah. 
please listen to them after you've listened to our episode, okay? Because yeah. ultimately, you gotta listen to your girl. Listen to your girl and then go listen to your boys, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. Set the scene for me. Oh my god, set Take the me scene. there. I haven't set the scene in a while. But Take I think that's because these ones are so dark. Take me there. Okay, bitch. Let's go. Bitch. Four years before the bedroom strangler... Russell Maurice Johnson would take the life of his first victim, London had produced a serial murderer who committed equally heinous crimes but never strayed from his MO and preferred victim type. Women employed as chambermaids were being stalked and murdered by a vicious unknown assailant branching from London to Chatham in southwestern Ontario. This is the terrifying case of the London Chambermaid Slayer. On February 3, 1969, 62-year-old Jane Woolley's landlord made his way to her York Street lodging house because he hadn't seen her for several days and he was waiting for an overdue rent payment. <laughs> okay. It's Spider-Man, isn't it? I know. It's Spider-Man. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to laugh, but I literally pictured Mr. Dietkovich. Rent. 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 Oh my god, and then Ursula comes up and she's like... That was not cool. And he's like, Parker, he's a good boy. And it's actually so wholesome. Yeah. You are like, a good oh my man. God. She is a good woman. You are a good man. She is a good woman. You know, I'm 2% Russian. Is Dietkovich even Russian? It's probably I don't not. I think so. It's probably like Ukrainian or yeah, something. I was say it's like Ukrainian or Slavic or, or Czech. There we go. But that's you so do, close. You guys fight that one out. That's close enough. <laughs> Fucking yeah, hell. It's, it's close enough. God, I couldn't stop picturing Mr. Dietkovich. Ursula is like the best character in that whole movie, by the way. She's a gem. I love her so much. Yeah, she made cookies. She oh. even got him the fucking milk. She should not have gotten him that fucking milk. Peter didn't deserve it. He's a little piece of shit in that movie, but like Toby is the ultimate Spider-Man. Okay, we can't do this. We can't do this. We just let him. We no. just let go of him just clocking Mary Jane, by the way. We can't do this. We cannot make this podcast a podcast about the Holy Trilogy. We can't do it. Mm -mm. We will divert completely even more so than we already have. On February 3rd, 1969, 62-year-old Jane Woolley's landlord made his way to her York Street lodging house because he hadn't seen her for several days and he was waiting for an overdue rent payment. Upon arriving, she didn't answer the door. So he entered her unit just after 1.30 p.m. and found Jane dead on the floor. He called police, and when the investigating officers arrived, it was apparent she had been dead for several days. She was lying on her back, barely clothed with only a pair of stockings on, and her face was covered with three pillows and a sweater. When investigators moved the pillows and sweater, they saw Jane had been severely beaten, and the cause of death was later determined to be a combination of blood loss and shock from the brutal fractures she sustained during the beating. Jesus. I know. Poor sweet Jane. The crime scene confirmed that her final moments were horrific. 
The telephone had been pulled off the receiver. Her clothes were scattered everywhere. Her purse was found upside down on the floor with the contents strewn about with no sign of the cash she'd just received from her payday. Sadly, Jane's pet budgie was also found dead in its cage. The fuck? There was enough food and water to last the bird days, but it's believed the bird died from the stress of losing its owner and perhaps even witnessing her murder. Oh my god. How heartbreaking is that? That's pretty bad. I thought he I thought someone killed the bird. But when it I was died researching, I thought the heart. same thing. Oh. No, it it did cuz birds are incredibly sensitive and incredibly attached to any human that is caring for them. Oh. I didn't know that. Isn't that so sad? Yeah, that's tragic. Poor little budgie. Mm. What color do you think it was? Blue or green? Pink. That's not one of the... You ask me. It's my imagination. I can do it. It was a pink budgie When I was there. young... was well, a pink uh, budgie out there. When I was young, my mom actually had two budgies. She oh, had yeah? a green and a blue one. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then it's going to be neither of those colors because that's going to be too hard to continue. Okay, so we'll keep it green. Yeah. Lastly... It seemed like whoever this man was, Jane had invited him inside her home because the ashtray on the coffee table was full of cigarette butts. Some of them had Jane's shade of lipstick on the filters, while the others did not. Mm. Investigators tried piecing together Jane's final movements. So, on the afternoon of January 29th, Jane was last seen leaving the London house on Dundas Street, where she worked as a part-time hotel chambermaid. She was done her shift, so she collected her pay from the owner and left. No one knows exactly where she went or what she did for the next several hours after leaving work because she was a very solitary person and no one was expecting her anywhere. Mm -hmm. When Jane failed to show up for work the next morning, No one considered her whereabouts. The London house was a dive with shady lodgers and staff, and the turnover rate was high, so it was assumed that she had quit without notice and her position was filled that day by one of the hotel's bar's regulars, and neither her boss nor her co-workers gave Jane a second thought. Wow, they just, they basically washed their hands of her. I know. Within the day. It's devastating because, like, that was one day. What if like something came up? She couldn't get a hold of of the phone or she couldn't get a hold of anyone there. It was one day. And they were like, oh shit. Oh my God. We're so used to people not showing off. Fuck it. Let's replace her. Hey, Susie. Susie at the bar. You, you're a heavy drinker, right? Let's, let, let's maybe try and wean you off the booze. Come on. Let's go. Let's be a chambermaid. Yeah, that's absolutely absurd. It's that's, ridiculous. That's um. It's so sad. Without knowing more details than that, that's a bad owner. That's an asshole. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, she didn't show up for her one shift. Ugh. Who cares? Fuck Jane. Yeah. It's horrible. Yep. Don't work for people like that. Next, investigators talked to a downstairs neighbor who reported hearing Jane's voice through the vents, saying words to the effect of "No, stop," following a thud. But. This only verified the evidence at the scene that Jane invited the wrong man into her house and paid for it with her life. There was so many questions that needed answering. How was he able to earn the trust of a reclusive senior and be invited into her apartment? Where had their initial meeting occurred? When did they meet? How? Sadly, 
Investigators had nothing else to go on. These questions went unanswered, and the case went cold. Oh, no. Poor Jane. It was impossible for London police to know that Jane Woolley was the first of a specific set of murders. Using Jane's murder as his exemplar, the chambermaid slayer thought he had found himself an easy victim. Poor, older women employed in the local low-rent hotel industry. The slayer saw these women as naive, lonely, and trusting, and figured they were people nobody would look for. I'm, I'm disturbed by this because I'm, we're fresh off our previous podcast episode mm-hmm. um, and as part of the series, and it's around the same timeline. And again, we have another case going cold. Exactly. And how this offender, this chambermaid slayer was like, oh my God, I have identified the perfect victim. They are old ladies. They are naive. They are poor. They will want my company and no one will look for them. And the frustrating and sad part is that no one did look for Jane. I mean, if you think about it, her last movements were attributed to January 29th. Mm-hmm. Her body was found on February 3rd, and that's only because the landlord wanted his rent money. And there was even someone earlier who heard this whole thing going down saying, please, no. And Apparently, thud. yeah. And uh, never nothing. said anything. Nothing. Because this would have been four days later. This would have been four days later that the landlord called and said, oh, my God, I just went into this tenant's apartment and they are dead. Like, let's say the landlord didn't need his rent money or want it or was looking for it or whatever. Like, how long would it have been? That's the terrifying part is that this freak was right. Yeah. He chose a victim that people weren't looking for. Even the place that she worked at, they were like, oh, okay, Jane didn't show up. I guess we'll just, uh, let's get, uh, like I said before, Susie at the bar. Come on, let's go. Why don't you be a chambermaid? Because someone didn't show up. Yeah. We have a high turnover rate. We're not the most luxurious place to work at. This is the part where just getting into true crime kind of stuff um, is, I guess, probably as baffling to anyone who's been in it as long enough. But um, the these aren't crimes of passion. These are, I mean, I'm going to say the cliche of like the cold calculated. It didn't matter. It is cold and calculated. Um, no, for it, sure. It didn't matter who this person was to to the person who, mm-hmm. who took her life. It it mattered type of person she was exactly how how that factored into him getting away with it exactly these opportunists essentially who have an agenda of their own and need to fit it to a specific type of person where it won't come back on them Mm -hmm. and that's the absolutely terrifying part that he sadly did pick a woman who had nobody looking for her not in her personal life not in her work life god knows how long she would have been in her apartment alone and dead until someone found her unless that the only reason is because that landlord wanted his money and even then that was four days later it's it's scary to think about how this ties into just basic police work how they how you can see how obvious 
obviously important it is, how critical it is that the police handle these kind of situations in a specific way. And then it's heartbreaking to reflect on this decades later and have something recent in Toronto, for example, mm -hmm. and the same situation ignored um, for far too long until it becomes something that no one can ignore. And we all have egg on our face because these people have been telling us the whole time that this was something going on. And Are uh, you making reference to Bruce MacArthur? I am. I and knew it, yeah. I don't, I guess, uh, one of my downfalls is I never remember names very well. Yeah, um, but you're the absolutely one... right. There was people 100% bringing names forward, acknowledging the fact that a certain demographic of people were being targeted in a specific location. And that's exactly what happened in the Bruce MacArthur case. Yeah. He was absolutely targeting a specific demographic, which was new Canadians. And it was absolutely in a specific location, yeah. which was the village, gay village in Toronto. Yeah. And yes, you're right. There was a hundred hints and tips and whatever you want to call it going in to the, the police force saying, yo, Please look out for the sky. Please watch our location. Please have our backs. And it wasn't happening until this disgusting mass murderer had committed his crimes for an, an unduly amount of time. Yep. Absolutely. It's, it is it is on the same spectrum, for sure. Yep. yep. Shame, on, shame on those people that just threw away within the day. Mm -hmm. Amen. A year and a half later... On the morning of September 5th, 1970, friends of 57-year-old widow Edith Otier rolled up to her country house in Berlin to drive her to work at the William Pitt Hotel in the neighboring town of Chatham, a city over an hour west of London, where she was employed as a chambermaid. Edith didn't answer the door, so when her friends found the door was unlocked, they entered, assuming she slept through her alarm, but her bed was empty. They called out her name and went looking through the house, where they eventually found her in the kitchen, lying face up on the floor beside the table and the wainscoting by the body covered in blood spatter. Oh. All right. For the listeners at home, wainscoting. <laughs> um... Uh, okay, wainscoting is like, picture like, okay, so technically we're in the 1970s right now. Mm -hmm. So picture a retro house, kitchen, whatever. You know how like it was um, stereotypical for the walls of a house to be like, the first half from the ceiling down midway would be normal paint. Yep. Second half of the wall to the ground would be like some sort of like wood paneling or usually those rectangular square kind of exactly. sides of the walls. Yeah. So that is what wainscoting is. Yeah, I think of like a country club usually having those. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. what wainscoting is. It's like the second half of a wall with like some sort of wood paneling or something that makes the second half of the wall very prominent. That's what wainscoting yeah. is. Not to be confused with scotch guarding, which <laughs> was also quite popular in the time period. Definitely not scotch guarding or I would have said it. A subsequent autopsy confirmed that Edith had been repeatedly stabbed and slashed in the chest and throat with two butcher knives taken from her own kitchen drawer. 
The autopsy also revealed that Edith had been bludgeoned with a nearby clothes iron left out from laundry day. It was during this brutal beating that Edith was sexually assaulted, knocked unconscious, and had paramortem knife wounds inflicted upon her to ensure she would never wake up. Do you know what paramortem is? I don't know what paramortem is, but I, I'm, I was initially just put off guard by the drastic shift we've we've made the incredible exactly the incredible amount of like overkill and assault on this poor woman yeah yeah we went from something that was absolutely creepy and disgusting to just pure ultra violence on this absolutely okay so what is it um paramortem is like wounds inflicted to the victim at the time of death. So the assault that this person put on her to quote unquote ensure she wouldn't wake up from it, it's essentially that I will stab her and make sure she won't wake up from this assault because she's already kind of losing consciousness. And I can assume that she won't come back from it as long as I inflict as much damage to her. Okay. It is incredibly savage and brutal. Okay, so this is incredibly fucked up, and I'm not making any jokes about this because exactly. I had some. No, but I'm not gonna. Uh, let's preserve Edith's dignity and not make jokes about it. I never make fun of the victims. No, God bless them. This is fucked up. I didn't ask for this shit. The scene was similar in its brutality to the murder of Jane Woolley in London nearly two years earlier. But Edith's murder marked an evolution and escalation of the killer's MO. These similarities between the victims and disorganized behavior at both scenes confirmed that the chambermaid slayer was targeting women of a certain age and income bracket. Both victims were of similar stature and appearance. They were older females living alone. Both were chambermaids in low-rent hotels. Both were heavy drinkers and smokers. Both had their purses emptied and money stolen in an act of post-mortem petty theft. And, apparently, both were willing to take a hotel guest back to their own home with them. The only two differences. First, the killer was unfortunately able to complete his sexual assault on Edith. And second, Edith worked in Chatham, and very little of what happened there made its way east to London. This means no one who knew of Jane Woolley's murder knew of Edith Otier's murder, and the cases were not connected at the time. What do you mean by not able to, like, not able to complete the second one sexually what oh what so you, in jane why in jane woolley's attack there was no sign of ugh, penetration okay hate it even though her clothes were scattered everywhere there was absolute signs that this was a sexually motivated attack but on her physical person there was no signs that this physical attack was completed when they saw Edith Otier's crime scene, she was unfortunately uh, attacked 
she had somebody had gotten to her in that way. Okay. That's odd. And in every other way, comparing these two scenes, they were identical, except mm-hmm. for that that one thing. Um, unfortunately, he got to Edith, and for whatever reason, he wasn't able to uh, complete the act with Jane. Okay. All right. That's that's terrible, but also something that stands out as, exactly. as strange. Um Mm-hmm. Just because I'm thinking of the environment that he's in, and I, this guy's an absolute clusterfuck of a person, obviously, when mm-hmm. he gets in there. But the creepy thing is, obviously, he's got a chari- enough charisma to get in in the first place. Um, Isn't that horrifying? Yeah, but also he's like in the he's in this environment now where, in the first instance, no one cared enough about this person. He basically had all the leeway he could fucking want. Um, and in this situation, it's something changed. And, um, you know, it based on how specific he mm-hmm. is on the type of person he preys upon, I would assume that he would be equally specific on what his needs are. The, honestly, Dyson, those are amazing observations. Thank you. So why don't you hold on to them and let's discuss them later. We will absolutely take everything you said into account and we can sort of speculate okay, okay. file those away please do put a you know what put if a, you will put a pin in it yeah put a pin on that put a pin in it okay okay much like jane woolley no one knows how or when the slayer managed to earn the trust of edith ota investigators had no leads no evidence no eyewitnesses and also, like Jane's case, Edith's went cold. Great. So we have that running for us. Cold cases? Oh, for sure. Uh, common thread. I am absolutely shook to my core with with that area's police work. Okay, but with that, mm-hmm. are you ready to hear this? Probably not, but hit me with it. This time, it was only four months later when the sadistic killer struck again. So remember, the first time, it was over like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. This time, it's only four months. Evidently comfortable with his new hunting grounds in Chatham, the chambermaid slayer walked into the Merlin Hotel in search of his next victim just before midnight on January 22nd, 1971. The Mara Hotel was an old time inn where the bar was divided into two sides, one for men and one for women. Seated on the lady side with a male acquaintance was a 57-year-old hotel chambermaid named Belva Russell, who was just beginning her weekend off. When Belva got up to head to the bathroom, she was followed down the dark hallway by another patron from the bar, the Slayer. Uh-oh. What they may have discussed when he followed her to the bathroom is unknown. It's also not unknown if the two were previously acquainted or whether she was selected purely because he realized that night that she was a chambermaid, therefore someone who perfectly fit his victim profile. The Slayer returned to the bar by himself a short time later and asked the bartender if he could move to the lady's side so that he could be close to the cigarette machine. While the slayer was sitting there alone, 
most likely plotting his next move. The hotel's waiter, William Betzo, had just finished his shift, so he pulled up a chair and introduced himself. The mysterious lone guest shook William's hand, and they chatted and drank together. The small talk they made would soon prove to be incredibly useful to investigators. The mysterious man said his name was Gerald Archer. He was married with a daughter, and they had recently moved to Adelaide Street South in Chatham because he just got a job as a forestry laborer. Now known to be the most common semi-skilled occupation amongst male serial killers. Fuck off. Oh my god. Dexter? Oh my god! Yes! Oh my god! Have we been making fun of that series for so long? Only for this moment? I didn't mean to completely zone out, but now that I just read that out loud, holy shit. Holy shit! That makes so much sense for the season finale. And Tom Thompson was by so many laws. <laughs> shut up. Shut <laughs> up. Do not parallel Dexter with Tom Thompson. Tom Thompson doesn't deserve it. That's true. Oh my God. Doesn't that make so much sense? That Holy shit. My mind is blown actually because when I watched that season finale, I was so disappointed by it. Not just because he went on to like, I don't know, fucking Oregon or whatever the fuck he moved on to, but the whole thing. His relationship with his sister and everything. That was a bad episode. Yeah, that was weird. Oh, my God. Do you think that's why they made him go on and be a fucking forester? I think we should think about it less and less about whether the writers intended to and just put it right into the headcanon. Okay, that's it. That's why. Makes so much sense. God bless. At the time, he had also been working as a highway tree cutter along Highway 401. The very highway that allowed many predators easy access between London and the surrounding towns. What Archer said next took William by surprise. If she doesn't smarten up, I'll have to kill her. Wow, just brazenly says that. Exactly. A stunned William asked who she was. And it was made obvious to William that Archer was talking about Belva Russell, who was now back from the bathroom and seated a few tables over, laughing and having a good time with her acquaintance. William dismissed this comment as the typical drunk talk he heard from most of the hooligans that passed through the Merrill Hotel bar and decided to call it a night. But it shouldn't have been dismissed. No. And for Archer... It was not just talk. What an asshole. <laughs> I want to say, yeah, I agree. Especially because he was the one that like went up and like pulled up a chair and was like, hey, bro, you seem alone. You want me to sit with you, my guy? And then was like, you know what? You kind of said something I'm not comfortable with. So bye. Yeah, I'm going to leave. And, and then didn't say anything. That's fu- why he has the cur- he has the he's he's confident enough to walk up to someone and just strike up a conversation, but they say something like that and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm out. Bye. I agree, but remember, this conversation did prove to be useful. Okay. Okay. Yep. So it was two a.m. when Reginald Tomlinson bumped into an unfamiliar man running down the stairwell of his Adelaide Street apartment building. Mm-hmm. 
Reginald composed himself and headed up to the apartment he shared with his common-law wife, Belva Russell. Upon entering, he discovered Belva's severely battered body laying in a pool of blood on the dining room floor. Most of her clothes had been removed, which led investigators to assume that she had been killed during a struggle with an assailant who had attempted to sexually assault her. Identical to the murders of Jane Woolley and Edith Otier, Belva had also been aggressively beaten in the face, head, and neck, suffering multiple fractures and significant trauma. After interviewing Reginald and retracing Belva's final movements, Chatham detectives began their investigation at the bar at the Merrill Hotel. Once they talked with William Betso, they got a description of their suspect and learned the name of who they believed was the chambermaid slayer, Gerald Archer, originally from London, but currently living in a house in Chatham just a few blocks away from Belva Russell's apartment. On February 12th, 1971, Gerald Archer was picked up for questioning by Chatham police. He was fingerprinted and placed in a lineup where Reginald Tomlinson was able to identify him as the mystery man that he ran into on the night of Belva's murder. Oh. As a result of overwhelming circumstantial evidence, Archer was charged with the murder of Belva Russell. Archer had exploited the area's awkward assemblage of police jurisdictions and was never linked to or charged with the murders of Jane Woolley and Edith Otier. In just under two years, he had killed three women in three different locations and involved three different police departments. He managed to prey on victims whose deaths saw only limited media coverage. He knew from experience that the unsavory hotels where he liked to go boozing often employed aged housekeepers who he believed could be easily conned and would often tolerate the risk of taking a weirdo stranger home in exchange for a little company. These were cruel and sadistic bruises, but in spite of the obvious pattern in victimology, a lack of tangible evidence at the time meant that he was only ever charged with the murder of his final victim, Belva Russell. Archel's trial began in June 1971 in Kent County. The jury found him guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison, but Archer knew he had beaten the system because a life sentence isn't actually a life sentence in Canada. The disgusting ghoul was taken out of the courtroom screaming, That's only the first strike against me! The ball game isn't over yet! He had killed three women, but had only been caught for one, and his metaphorical bravado was more literal than anyone realized at the time. So, who is this ghoul? Who is he? Well, all we know is this. Gerald Thomas Archer was born in London, Ontario in 1932, and by 1950, 
He had a criminal record for offenses, which included robbery, breaking and entering, and possession. He began corresponding with a woman named Mary in 1966 and met her in person in December 1967. The two got married 11 days after they officially met and moved to Merlin, the same town Edith was murdered in. They lived in Merlin until October 1970, a month after Edith's death, then moved to Adelaide Street South in Chatham, only blocks away from where Belleville Russell lived. They're always close. Mm-hmm. In Canada... Since life imprisonment doesn't mean you spend your life behind bars, Archer was paroled in 1985 at the age of 53 or 54 and walked out a free man with only one condition. He was never to go back to the places where his murderous actions took place. He spent the next 10 years as a nomad, drifting from town to town throughout Ontario and staying in many of the low-rent dives where he used to go roaming for his victims. During those 10 years, there's no evidence that he ever harmed another chambermaid or anyone else. In 1995, at the age of 63 or 64, Archer died of heart failure, alone and penniless. Rest in pain, you piece of shit. (laughs) Honestly. And he was buried in a potter's field after his remains went unclaimed. But he wouldn't stay in the ground for long. What? After his death, Archer's estranged wife and daughter went to police and explained that more than two decades earlier, Archer had confessed to killing Edith Otier. The spontaneous admission attributed more to boasting than confessing had been made after a story about Edith's murder had been published in a local newspaper and Archer had a few drinks in him. Like William Betzo at the Merrill Hotel, his wife and daughter had initially dismissed the confession as a drunken cry for attention. Once Archer was convicted for the murder of Belva Russell, they thought he could be the chambermaid slayer, but had been too afraid to mention anything sooner. When they finally came forward, they mentioned having heard about something called the DNA Identification Act and new techniques that could help solve cold cases. And they were right. Investigators and scientists had been looking at London as a natural starting point for using new advancements with respect to genetic profiling. The successes of the Human Genome Project were the driving force behind a combined effort to clear the backlog of unsolved sex crimes and murders from the city's past. Project Angel was a task force that consisted of the London Police and the OPP. For our non-Ontario or Canadian listeners, that's the Ontario Provincial Police. The op. The op. They were assigned to the the groundbreaking, high-profile initiative of exploring new DNA technology, and they delivered 
when it came to testing a particular DNA sample. Oh. Ready to hear about it? Yeah, hit me with that. <clears throat> Kodak? <laughs> Was I right? Was I right? No. Oh. Uh, CODIS. And that's American. <laughs> In 2000, five years after Archer's death, a disinterment order was made, his body was exhumed, and tissue samples were taken to be compared to the crime scene samples from both the Jane Woolley and Edith Otier murders. While the chambermaid slayer had apparently confessed to killing 57-year-old Edith Otier, the way in which the crime scene was processed and the evidence mishandled made it impossible to determine if Archer was involved in her murder. The murder of Jane Woolley was a different story. It turned out that DNA from one of the cigarettes without lipstick collected from the ashtray in her apartment was conclusively shown to belong to Archer. It was now strike two, and after nearly 30 years, the identity of the chambermaid slayer had finally been resolved. While technically Edith Otier's murder is unsolved since it could never definitively be credited to Archer, the detailed anecdotal evidence about his confession and all other factors linking her murder to him have led investigators to consider the case closed, making it, finally, strike three for the London chambermaid slayer. Yeah, you're out, you fucking bum. Yeah, came back to bite him. It's just so like, blah, when you think know. about that from like the trial and he's like, it's only strike one for me. Because he's fucking flaunting it. I know. He's, he's... he's literally like basically just nodding to everyone, including a judge mm -hmm. that I've done more, but you can't prove it. Exactly. At least now they do know. Uh, for sure, for Jane with Edith, it's more of like circumstantial understanding that he was definitely involved. Yeah. Also, it fits way too perfectly, even down to the age, Belva. I just, I just can't get my head around that. Like, what? Why the fuck did we end up going with a rule that it's max twenty five, and it's not up to anyone to be like, there are instances where that can change. There is. Is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's usually oh. that, um, because typically, if people are sentenced to, you know life in prison it usually means 25 years minimum because a lot of the time if it's for multiple crimes or whatever then they will do it so that you're sentenced consecutively oh okay so then you serve a minimum 25 years for all of your crimes but in cases if it's really really heinous like for example Dylan millard oh that fucker yeah he's concurrent good so he'll like never get out because he's serving a 25 to life sentence for each of the murders so he's behind bars for like a hundred years plus the other crimes yeah so that, it's that really fucker had the same attitude though too didn't he so had that's that stupid like mm -hmm. i'm too smart for this and i'm gonna didn't he defend himself what do i feel like he defended himself? i think yes he did he tried yeah. at one point to defend himself yeah because no one would work for him it was so high profile yeah well fuck him <laughs> so honestly yeah. it's a piece of shit you get so, yeah, typically, in most cases, they stand by that 25-year minimum, and then you're eligible for parole. Um, even then, especially nowadays when you're eligible for parole, they usually will not let you out. Oh, okay. Mm, actually, that's not true. There is cases where, depending on your crime, they won't let you out. They'll make you stay. Yeah. But then if it's super, super heinous, they'll give you concurrent. 
Mm -hmm. you have to do one after the other. And yeah, in this case, I mean, he did get out in the 80s, but he died alone. So penniless. That's what he gets. He dies alone, penniless, stuck just in the drifting for the rest of his days, going to those same shady bars that he used to hunt for, like used as his hunting grounds. Yeah. And if you need to pick me up uh, at this point in the story, um, here it is. He's rotten in the fucking ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure is. Yeah. He's fucking worm food right now. And then even though it's like um, his ex-wife and daughter, it did take him a long time to come forward, but I mean, at least they did. Yeah. I mean, uh, I have a feeling that he maybe fucking threatened them. Oh, and for sure. scared the shit out of them. And, you know, what are you going to do in the, you know, like way back then, there's I feel like there wasn't maybe that security that you kind of feel now, but not as much because we really haven't made that much progress in it, but Mm-mm. a little more at least. So I, I definitely think they were just afraid and yeah. probably knowing the way he did that he would be out one day. So why put your life at risk? If he's going to get out one day, what if he came for you? He obviously had no qualms taking lives. No, none at all. And then when they, after they found out he was dead, they were probably like, well, he literally can't come for us. So, Let's go. Yeah. I I don't like that the story before this mm-hmm. was the guy didn't have to go to prison. He went to a high security um, mental facility. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like he still gets to apply for, you know, leniency all the time and drag the families through the fucking mud, basically, and get um, chances to leave the grounds and, mm-hmm. you know, check out all the cities around him and stuff like that. And then we got this case, too, where the fucker's out. After 25 fucking years. I know. What the shit? Yeah. Let's look at that, actually. So he was released in 85. He was paroled. And he would have went in in 71. So he didn't even serve 25 years. Oh, my God. Right? Because it's a, it's a max 25. Yeah, yeah. Maximum yeah. 25. Well, no, it's, it's shit. It's 25 to life. But you can be paroled whenever especially back then okay yeah the trial began in june of 1971 so exactly what month he would have gone to prison but i mean it was 1971 and then he was paroled in 85 so what's that like 14 years so yeah that lovely listeners is the story of jane woolley edith otier belva russell and the gross ghoulish gerald thomas archer Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. Be sure to visit our website, darkadaptationpodcast.ca. Last week I said .com. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, we, are, we are Canadian. I don't think it matters, but it The irony of having the most Canadian episode we had done, <laughs> and we said .com. <laughs> .com. Oh, it's just like, I don't know. Yeah. Habit. So, yeah. Our listeners are smart. They'd figure it out. Yes. So yes, darkadaptationpodcast.ca, where you can support the show by buying us a coffee if your lovely little hearts desire. Follow us on Instagram at darkadaptationpodcast. Share the show with the spooky bitches in your life. Make sure you listen to Spoils of Horror and Horror House. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the support, kind words. We will catch you on the dark side. Thanks for listening. Bye.
We're good. We're we're running. Okay, sound check's done. Sound check is done. And hopefully I won't sound like Darth Vader this time. Impressive. Most impressive. Ah, oh, my legs! Oh, they're burning! It's like people only do things because they get paid. And that's just really sad. Oh, oh my god, have I ever told you? I thought you were going to say, oh, all this conversation is giving me a headache. <laughs> Little yellow. Different. <laughs> The autopsy had also revealed that Edith had been bludgeoned with a nearby clothes iron left out from laundry day. Oh my god. <laughs> laundry day. Nothing clean, right? <laughs> laundry day. That's garbage day, sorry. <laughs> I just picture like Bill Paxton. You know what I'm talking about? Terminator! Oh. When the guys are like, laundry day, nothing clean, right? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I needed the characterization to put me there again. Oh, god yeah. damn it. <laughs> My movie references, you gotta keep up. You gotta be quick, yeah. Keep up with me, Dyson. I'm trying. Love you, bitch, but keep up with me.